I invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening with me for our sermon to Matthew 24. I thank God for His people and their willingness uh, to minister. Um, We all have a place in God's church as members. Uh, We're thankful for Andrea for... for, um, Thank you for all that, that she means to us, the smiling face, uh, the encouragement, as well as the ministry. Um, and we're, we thank God for that. We are nearly finished with our series um, on eschatology. It, it, it's not the most um, comprehensive series we could do. I didn't walk through any book of the Bible as I typically do. Um, but tonight we talk about the second advent, the, the official or literal or Um, we might say, complete return of Jesus Christ to the earth for His second time. Next week, we'll talk about the Millennial Kingdom. We'll talk about the events just following the Millennial Kingdom. We'll talk about the purpose of the Millennial Kingdom. We'll talk about eternity. And then we will be finished, as I mentioned this morning. Uh, Following that, of course, I'm gone for a week. In, in Cleveland, and then that next week we will begin a new series in First Thessalonians. I've been studying that book now for some weeks in preparation for this new series, and um, it's, it's a, a, an exciting and edifying book, so I'm excited for that time. But we come tonight to that event in the Bible that drives us, that gives us hope, that establishes our longing, that compels our urgency to serve and to obey and to witness of the salvation which we have received. If we think about this morning's message and we talked about the resurrection and the fact that the resurrection is what gives you purpose. The resurrection is what gives you direction in your life. Because of what Christ has already done, And because of what that means to you, you now have a direction. You wake up every morning with something to do. You wake up every morning with a purpose to fill. We don't have to wonder about that purpose. We don't have to try to fill it with stuff, with amusements, or or um, with the carnal things of this world, uh, the more we fill ourselves and fill our purpose with that which we have been called to do through Jesus Christ, being called out of this world, being called to be a servant of Jesus Christ, the more uh, we will find fulfillment in the purpose that we have been made to fulfill. And tonight, as we think about this second coming, this is that hope. This is the hope that that the, the believers have longed for. Now, we know that as far as we are concerned as a church, uh, if, if, if Jesus were to, to uh, return tonight, we would say, we, we would fully expect from our theology that the rapture is the first on the timetable. That would be the point where we as God's people are taken up to be with the Lord. And yet, this um, uh, we might say the second advent proper. We, we can think of the second advent in two ways. One being... Um, this this twofold return, first time Jesus comes to the cloud to take his own, the second time Jesus' feet actually touch the earth. So we can think of it that way, but then we also see that the actual physical return, the time promised, the, the, the time where Jesus will come the same way in which he left. And that's what we consider tonight. This is where Jesus claims victory. This is where the wicked are judged. This is where all that that we hope for, all that we long for, all that we know is coming one day, all of the, the, the time where we just look at the world around us and we say, God, this just isn't fair. The wicked are prospering. Even as we think of what David says so often in the Psalms, the wicked are prospering. The righteous are cast down. They flee. They're persecuted. God, this is not right. God, what is going on? As we, we think in, the, in Revelation about the martyrs and their cries, when, Lord, will You avenge us? When will You avenge us of the wrongs that have been done to us? When will the blood of the martyrs that have been spilt finally be avenged? We're going to look at it tonight. This is the climax of history. As with every aspect of our interpretation, we endeavor to take the prophecies of the second coming 
of Christ as literally as we possibly can without doing any injustice to the text. We have admitted that there is ambiguity, that there is wiggle room, there are things we don't understand. Regardless of the theological perspective you take, there's going to be things that just don't fully make sense. Uh, God made it this way. God, if, if He had intended to tell us more, He would have. We think of that time in Revelation where John hears the angel, the angel that, that came down from heaven and placed one foot on the sea and one foot on the land with the rainbow over his head. And John says he cried with a loud voice and he uttered great words. And then that angel looked at John and said, do not write the words that I just spoke. What were those words? Wow, I don't know. You don't know. We don't know. I wish I knew. What did that angel say? Whatever it was, it must have been pretty important, but whatever it was, God didn't want us to know because He specifically told John, don't write those words. And so we understand that God has only told us so much, so it's our responsibility to take what we have been given, to compare Scripture with Scripture, to create a consistent framework of biblical interpretation and then to seek the methods and the understanding of the text that is best in line with a consistent framework. And that's what I believe we have done throughout. And that's what we're going to continue to do as best we can this evening. And as we introduce this unified body of unfulfilled prophecy that is realized through the second advent, we begin first as we have every week in Matthew 24. We have mentioned several times that Matthew 24 is in many ways uh, among conservative scholars considered to be a chronological account by Jesus Christ of the events of the tribulation, the events of those seven years. And so we pick up tonight in chapter 24, verse 29, and Jesus Christ says this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the door. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field and one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill and one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would have come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household, to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites." There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the account as Jesus Christ describes it. And he tells his disciples in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31, that following the tribulation of those days, the terrible events which we learned about last Sunday evening, it was not exactly a cheerful message as we considered the final three and a half years and all of the terrible events that will accompany this time, 
There will appear what the scriptures say, the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. All the tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, coming in the clouds. And as we put some of this scripture together, Zechariah 14.4 is very helpful to us. About this day in question, the scriptures say this, And his feet, that's Jesus' feet, the Messiah's feet, shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. This revelation concerning the return of Jesus Christ should not surprise us, as this is exactly how Jesus promised the disciples he would return. Remember that right around this time there will be that great earthquake. The Jerusalem will be split in thirds. There will be uh, islands that are simply engulfed in the sea. Mountains will fall flat. The great cities of the earth will, will, be, will fall flat at this great earthquake. It will be a time of great judgment. Then the, sun, the sign of the Son of Man, to put it in context, He comes down, His feet touch the Mount of Olive. It splits in two toward the north and toward the south. In Luke 24... Verses 50 and 51, the scriptures tell us this. Jesus is about to leave. He, he has died. He's been buried. He's risen from the dead. He's seen his disciples. He taught them in Galilee. He spent time with them. And now he is going to leave. And the scriptures say that he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. So we see a time where Jesus Christ was carried up into heaven. And, and where does it say he was carried up? It says that he led them out as far as Bethany. Well, if you look at a map of old Jerusalem, Jerusalem at the time of Christ, you'll find that Bethany was, give or take, a, 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 a short distance, a short span away from Jerusalem to the east. In fact, Bethany was built on the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus Christ is at the Mount of Olives when this comes to pass. Acts 1 tells us this in verses 9 through 11. It's another account of Jesus Christ's ascension into heaven. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, Two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Jesus was taken up from the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.4 tells us that the Messiah, when He returns, will return back down to the Mount of Olives and His feet will touch that mountain and it will cleave in two. It will break in two going toward the north and toward the south. So again, as we would expect and as we see, Scripture is consistent. The same way he went up is the same way he'll return. He went up bodily, he'll return bodily. He went up physically, he'll return physically. He went up visibly, he'll return visibly. He went up from the Mount of Olives, he'll return to the Mount of Olives. Don't you love it when it all just kind of fits together like a puzzle? It always happens with the Scriptures. This past Tuesday, we had a great time with that. We were learning what it means that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And when you look at all the Scriptures, it just kind of fits together like a puzzle. The difference between Jesus when He ascended and Jesus when He descends again, well, when He ascended, He ascended to His place in heaven, having left and winning a spiritual kingdom through His resurrection. When He descends again, He will come back to win His physical kingdom to conquer the kingdoms of this world. As Jesus goes on in Matthew 24 describing the end times, He describes them as the days of Noah in that same way the coming of the Son of Man will be. And if we understand what, what Jesus is saying here as He compares Noah, uh, Peter does the same thing as he describes um, the, the idea of the ark and 
and um, using that as typology as we talked about this morning for salvation and the, the salvation that comes from an answer of a good conscience toward God. Jesus describes the days of Noah, days when, when men were, were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. So though there will be some terrible events that, that span these three and a half years, the plagues and such, and, and men blaspheming God, it appears that, that the human race will still be trying to function. People will still be trying to live. It's not as if everyone will just um, be hiding and, and fleeing and, and will have just given up on everything. A part of the defiance against God, a part of the, 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 the reason why God must judge the people is because they will be so callous to God. They will be so defiant and blasphemous against God as we read last week during those final judgments that they are going to press forward. They are going to continue on even in the midst of all of these troubles. So Jesus says there will still be, people will still be living their lives. And then, just as in a moment, Noah entered the ark and the door was closed and then there was the deluge, so there will be that moment when Jesus Christ comes again and everybody will realize, oh, This was true. He is coming to judge. And now it's too late. Could you imagine in the days of Noah? Scriptures tell us Noah was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. They're building this gigantic boat. It had never rained on the earth, presumably. Noah's saying it's going to rain. Noah saying, repent. Noah saying, pleading that others would get in the boat. People say, how did they fit all of those animals on the boat? Well, if you do the research, you find out they had, and, and, and you boil it down to the fact that they weren't having to get every species on the ark, just every kind. You realize that not only did they have enough room, but you start saying, why did they have so much room on that boat? I believe, and I believe it's consistent with Scripture to say they had that much room on the boat because there was enough room for anybody who would repent. And there came a day when Noah and his seven family members got onto that boat and the Scriptures say the Lord closed that door and then the rains began to pour and the, the earth began to give way and water began to come out of the earth and at that point the world said, Oh, this is true. But see, they had been so callous. They had been so blasphemous. They had been so unwilling to listen, so unwilling to place their faith in God, and it was too late at that point. So will be the days at the end of the tribulation. So will be the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And he says this, and, and we need to listen closely and think closely, uh, carefully here because, because this is very often taken out of context. The Scriptures say, uh, Jesus says, Then shall two be in the field, and one shall be taken, and other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, and one shall be taken, and the other left. And people quite characteristically paint this as a picture of the rapture. Kind of makes sense, right? Two people there, one taken, the other's left. But this is not the rapture of the church. Now, we say that for a couple of reasons. If, if you say this is the rapture of the church, then your timeline gets all goofed up, Right? If, if we're going to say that we are pre-tribulation rapturous, which is what this church believes. Now, if we're going to read this literally and assume that these verses are the rapture, then we must become post-trib. Not, not pre-wrath, not mid-tribs, but we must become post-tribs. Everything has happened. Jesus Christ is returning and at His return is when there's the rapture. But we don't have to do that because Jesus taught something else in Scripture that gives us far more insight into what is going on here. This does not have to be the rapture and it can still be consistent with pre-tribulational thinking. Let me tell you why. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 20, we talked about this last week, uh, as, as John tries to picture exactly what is happening in the, the, uh, on this last day, he says that the wine press was trodden without the city and blood came out of the wine press even unto the horses' bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. 
this verse told us that, that God's wrath would be poured out upon the earth and that there would be many, many that are killed on that day. As a matter of fact, 1,600 furlongs is, uh, a furlong is about 600 feet. So 1,600 furlongs times 600 feet. And then if you make that, um, if you take the square root of that number to get the, the general, oh, you take that number, you divide it by 5,280 to get your miles, and then you square root it to get a square, and you end up with about 13 and a half square miles of distance where this blood will be up to the horse's bridle, depending on the horse, right? That's, that, that's pretty serious. This will be a time of death, of bloodshed. But that's speaking of the, the valley of Megiddo. That's speaking of that place, as we talked about last week, where all the armies of the earth will converge to fight against the Lord and the Lord will slay them. But what about everyone else? Right? The unbelieving women that didn't go to battle. The unbelievers all around the world that weren't a part of the armies that are led to Megiddo on that day. What will happen to them? Well, there is Scripture to tell us what will happen to them, and I believe that is what we are seeing in Matthew 24. We are seeing a time where, as the book of Revelation pictures the reaping of the earth, where the angel comes and he thrusts his sickle in the earth to reap the wicked, we are seeing, if you will, a rapture or a removal of the wicked from this World, And this is not just um, kind of pie in the sky, well, this is nice, it fits with our theology type thinking. Jesus Christ taught this. In Matthew 13, verses 24 through 27, Jesus Christ gave a parable. The parable, you might be familiar, of the wheat and the tares. Do you recall? And in the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus said this, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, in the next slide, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest when ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them but gather the wheat into my barn. So in this kingdom parable, uh, Jesus Christ picturing the wheat as those who are a part of the kingdom of God and the tares as those who are not a part of the kingdom of God. Remember Jesus Christ speaking to a Jewish audience here of the kingdom that is to come. We are a part of that kingdom. We are what you would call kingdom citizens living out in preparation for the literal kingdom that's coming one day. And Jesus Christ says there's coming a time where, uh, the, the, where oh, in his parable, there, are, there is wheat and he plants the wheat and he says the enemy sows tares. That would be the unbelieving world amongst the wheat. And his workers come and say, should we, should we pull out the tares right here, right now? The wheat hasn't grown yet. It hasn't come to fruition. It's not time for harvest, but should we, should we yank it out? And he says, no, no, no. Because there's a chance that if you pulled the tares now, you might pull up some wheat with it. So wait till the end, and when the end comes, take the tares out and then leave the wheat. Take the tares and remove them and burn them and then gather the wheat into my barn. Does that sound somewhat reminiscent of what the Scriptures say in verse 31 of Matthew 24, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of the trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. There's a gathering together of the wheat, but there has to be first a removal of the tares. 
And so as Jesus Christ is speaking about these days of Noah, see, we're, we're just about to step from the second advent into the millennial kingdom. In the millennial kingdom, who's there? Believers are there. And we know that there will be those who are mortal still. Not everyone will have a resurrected body at that time. Those who are dead, they'll have the the second resurrection. They will be mortal, but there will be that contingency of mortal beings who will repopulate the earth. They are believers. They go into the kingdom. That's the wheat. The wheat doesn't need to be taken out because there will be a a group of mortals on the earth in the millennium. We'll talk about that a bit more next week. What needs to be removed is the unbelieving world. And so as Jesus Christ is describing in Matthew 24, this, this idea that there will be two work in a field and one will be taken and another left, and there will be two in a bed and one will be taken and another left, he's not speaking of the rapture here. He's speaking of the removal of the unbelievers from this world. Turn with me now, if you would, to the book of Revelation, verse 19. I'd like us to read these events in Revelation. And it will also give us another reason why we would believe what we believe about this final removal of the wicked from this world. I'm going to read beginning of verse 11 through verse 21. Again, I'm sorry we're skipping and we have skipped so much Scripture in Revelation. Um, and I, I hate to say it this way, but a lot of what I have been skipping has been the, the incredible things that are happening in heaven at this time. And the reason why I've done that is because I'm trying to connect these events that we're learning with that which we learned about in Ezekiel. And so those events in heaven are probably actually, in a manner of speaking, more um, important for us because that's where we'll be. But as far as the scope of what will be happening in the end times as it is taught and as it is uh, elicited in the Old Testament, um, that is, is kind of what we're drawing out with this mini-series. So beginning in Revelation 19, verse 11, John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords, and I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that have received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with flesh. Again, a gruesome picture of that which will take place following Jesus' return as those that are upon the earth, these kingdoms and these kings and these captains and these mighty men that have opposed Christ will be slain by the word of his mouth. And this is the second coming of Jesus Christ.
when he comes again. But the question remains, what does this mean to you and I? What does this mean to you and I? Well, Jesus continued in Matthew 24, you recall, to teach. And though he was teaching to his Jewish audience, and and we know that and and we believe that that is very uh, significant in terms of uh, what Jesus was saying here as, as we recognize the church to have a different role, much of what Jesus taught is very uh, important and pertinent for us today. For the Scriptures told us, and we read it already, that we do not know the hour or the day in which Christ will come. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But if we don't know the day of His second advent, then surely we cannot know the day where He will take us either. If we cannot know the final day, nor can we know the first day. And so this sense of urgency, this sense of imminence, this reality that Jesus Christ could come at any moment, that things could begin at any moment, this is a very valid teaching for the church, just as it is for the nation of Israel. And Jesus Christ, as we read, said this in Matthew twenty-four thirty-two: Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Well, he is calling them unto seeing the signs. These are signs in the tribulation, signs that we will not see. However, the parable of the fig tree being a common prophetic representation of Israel, though we recognize that we will not be here, we also recognize that we have a job to do. Jesus said in verse 34 that this generation, this age, this period, the time of the Gentiles, the time of the church, it will not pass until these things be fulfilled, that this could happen at any time. And He said in verses 35 and 36 of Matthew 24 that though heaven and earth shall pass away, His words will not. It will come to pass. But he said, and he reminds us, that of that hour knoweth no man, not in heaven, not the angels, no one but the Father. There are always people every year that are attempting to place a time, place a date, place a generalized uh, window in which Jesus Christ will return. This year was the year of the blood moons. There was a great deal of calling out for the, the tremendous um, prophetic and uh, theological significance of this many blood moons falling on Jewish feast days and such, if you have kept up with such things. And you'll, you'll notice that for all the alarmism and for all of the, the um, statements of, of dogmatism about things are happening, things could happen, things will happen, it hasn't happened. Nothing's happened. Now, that doesn't mean that He's not coming today. It doesn't mean He's not coming tomorrow. But what I'm telling you is that the day and the hour knoweth no man. And that is because we don't have to know. And that's because we don't need to know. These men that devote their time and their energy to trying to figure out these signs, trying to read these signs, trying to read between the lines. May may, may I just put it this way? Why are we spending so much time trying to read between the lines of the Bible when we have such a hard time reading the lines of the Bible? Why are we spending so much time trying to tell people what the Bible says between the lines when when we're not even obeying what's on the lines? Let's worry about what is clear. Now, that doesn't mean we just cast eschatology out the window because, as I mentioned this morning, I believe in many ways our eschatology dictates our theology. But at the same time, if Jesus tells us that no man knows the day nor the hour, save his Father in heaven, the angels don't know, the demons don't know, Satan doesn't know, no man knows. Why do we need to know? Why are we trying so hard to know? We don't know. No man knows. So, so we don't need to know. We don't need to speculate. But there are things we do need to do. And that's going to be our application this evening. As Jesus Christ spoke of 
the end times and what it means for you and I, not even in the future, but today, there were several things that he told us our understanding of the end times, our understanding of the events surrounding the last days should do for you and should do for I, for me today. Today as in right now and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Let's talk about a few of those. This is just a small list. The first one, be watchful. Jesus Christ taught us this one in Matthew 24. He said, watch therefore, verse 42, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. Skipping to verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give him meat in due season? Blessed is the servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find doing. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the key. The blessed man is not the man who figures out when the master cometh. The blessed man is not the man who has the inside track on the day and the hour. The blessed man is the man who, having seen what is coming ahead and knowing that the master could return at any moment, that is the doctrine of the imminency of Jesus Christ, he busies himself doing what the master had asked him to do, had told him to do, doing what he's been left to do while he waits for the master to return. If Christ did indeed turn, return today, return tomorrow, return the next day, would we be one who is one of those blessed who has been found doing, busy about the Father's work, busy living a life that is pleasing unto the Lord. Can you see how easy it is for us to get so mixed up in what is going to happen that we fail to prepare for what's going to happen? I kind of thought of it this way when I was writing this sermon. It's like you spend so much time planning what you're going to do on your vacation, working out all the nuances of your vacation that you're ready to go to the airport and you realize you haven't packed. You're so busy thinking ahead that you forgot to prepare for it. See, what's going to happen is going to happen. It's already there. We know it's going to happen and we know the ending. Jesus wins. Whether you believe whatever you believe about what's going to happen in that tribulation, will we be there? Will we not? Will we go through it? Will we not? Will, will we have to contend with some of these things? Will we not? The, 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 those things, I believe, do matter. But may I say what matters more is whether we're there or whether we're not, whenever we see our Savior, are we prepared? Have we been packing to go? Or we, will we be found empty? So be watchful. Be watchful. Number two, be sober. That word sober meaning serious, grave, um, uh, clear-minded. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 tells us this. For yourselves know how perfectly the day of the Lord so cometh, excuse me, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. It's coming. No one will know. Jesus Christ said the same thing, that no one will expect it. You say, how in the world all of these things happening around the world, how could they not expect it? Well, how could in the days of Noah they not have expected rain after 120 years of preaching? Because the hearts will be hardened. The hearts will be darkened. People will not be ready. So the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And then he says in verse 6, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch, we talked about that, and be sober. We talked this morning about your life's purpose. That outside of Christ, there really is no meaning to this life that we lead. We, as many pundits have said, we're born, we grow, we pay taxes, we work, we die. That's what we do. This is life. If that's all that there is, that's all that there is, and there's no meaning at all. But if there is a resurrection from the dead, if Christ is indeed alive, then we have meaning. We have purpose. You aren't like the rest of the world because you have the capacity daily to store up treasure for eternity. But that takes a mind that is Serious. 
ready, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, to wake up, to grow up, to get serious, to, to not be deceived, to get busy to do the work. Can we do that this evening? Can we place within our mindsets, whether you're, you're 5 or whether you're 15 or whether you're 55 or it doesn't matter. Whatever age you're at, can we begin to frame in our mindset when it comes to spiritual things that we are going to be sober? That we are going to take this stuff seriously? I believe that the fact that you're here this evening is a part of that. That you take this stuff seriously. But is it reflected in our day in and day out? Are we, are we living it? Is this important to us? See, because it, it's, it's everything. It is everything. It is eternity. It is life. It is purpose. It is God's plan. Everything that God has made us for. Everything that He's made this world for. Everything that this world is slouching towards. It's coming to a head and we're a part of it. We're a part of Christ's victory. We're a part of Christ's kingdom. We are a part of Christ's eternity. And this is just a blip on the radar. Our lives. Will He come? Before we die, every generation of believers thinks so because they look around at the world and they say, it couldn't get much worse. But we don't know. We don't know. What we do know is what He's told us to do. And it's not to sell all of our things and sit up on a hill and look to the skies. And it's not to go seclude ourselves in little communities and live as if there's no world around us. It's to be in the world, but not of the world, using our liberty, but not abusing our liberty, testifying of the risen Savior and serving our Redeemer. Number three. First, be watchful. Be sober. Number three, be faithful. Be faithful. What we speak of this evening is not a sprint. It's not about pouring everything into God for a few hours and then taking the rest of the day off or taking the rest of the week off. It's not about waking up at 5 in the morning so you can spend your hour with God so that you can have the other 23 hours to yourself. It's not about coming one day in the week and filling up with all your spirits so that the rest of the week you can just live the way you want to live. This is, this is a marathon. Uh, a long-distance runner isn't thinking when, when, when that gun sounds and he begins his run, he's not thinking, let me get ahead of the crowd. Let me put everything I have into these first few moments because he knows if he expends his tank at the beginning, he's not going to have anything left for the long haul. I know when I'm on a trip that if I eat all of my jelly beans in the first 20 minutes of the trip, then I'm not going to have any jelly beans left for the rest of the trip and that would be a tragedy. So I need to think long term. I need to think a few jelly beans now, a few jelly beans a little bit later, so that I can extend my jelly beans throughout the trip. We are in for the long haul, right? Maybe we will be taken home tonight. Maybe the Lord will come. Maybe we'll get into our car and on our way home, someone will hit us or we will hit someone or we will hit something and we will be ushered into eternity. But barring any circumstance of such, we have years ahead of us to serve the Lord. And that is the way we need to think of it. One day after the next, waking up and saying, this is a day to serve the Lord. We're not asked by God to be the fastest or the best. We're simply asked to keep moving. Be faithful. You'll fall. You'll trip over a rock in this marathon. But the Scriptures tell us the just man falleth seven times, but he gets himself up. We read it in Psalm 37 this evening, did we not? The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. The one that falls and stays on his face for the rest of the marathon, that's the one that's failed. The one that falls, falls into sin, falls into apathy, gets a little bit off on his priorities, loses focus, but then he, he, he reads God's Word and he repents of his sin and he refocuses and he gets himself back up and he tells his family, look family, for a while there we stopped doing what we needed to do, but we're going to get back up and we're going to get going again. 
That's the man that the Lord's looking for. Not a man that's perfect, but a man that's faithful. Be faithful. Be watchful. Be sober. Be faithful. Luke chapter 12, verse 42, 43. The Scriptures tell us, the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. He's not asking us to be the best. He's asking us to be found doing, to be found faithful. God doesn't need you to put all of Christianity on your shoulders and to carry it to greater heights. God wants faithfulness where you are with the gifts that you've been given. We grow. We improve. We learn. Always moving forward. Always becoming a better servant of the King. Fourth, be bold. Be bold. You know, we cannot afford to hide our faith. The world is bombarded daily with sin. And when they come across you, they have a chance to see a glimmer of the kingdom. They have a chance to see what their life is missing, the freedom and purpose that accompanies being among the redeemed. My favorite job, the favorite, I don't consider this a job, uh, but my favorite job, secular job that I ever had was one college um, summer that I came back home and I worked at McDonald's. And the reason why that was my favorite job, I've done a lot of jobs in my time, was because that was where it was the darkest. I mean, it was a dark, spiritually dark place to work. And what I found was the darker your environment, the brighter your light shines. All I had to do to be a testimony for Jesus Christ was come in and be me. Was to come in and be faithful. Was to come in and ask and do what the Lord asked me to do. Was to not cheat. Was to not steal. Was to not lie. Was to be diligent in my work. And people looked at me and said, what are you doing? You're doing what your boss told you to do. I don't get it. What are you doing? You're, you're not slacking off on the job. I don't get it. And immediately, I could just look at them and say, I'm a Christian. I serve God in heaven. Oh, and they say, that's what it means to be a Christian. And I got to share the gospel. The darker the light, the, bright, the darker the night, the brighter the light shines, the song says. We don't have to be that one that's incessantly out there confronting everybody with the reality of their sin. The Lord has gifted some people toward confrontational evangelism and some people that's, that's what God has called them to do and I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but what I'm saying is you shouldn't be ashamed. You shouldn't be ashamed to live out your life. Jesus said this in Matthew 11, verses 5 and 6, The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them, and blessed is he whom shall not be offended in me. John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus to say, are, is, are you really the Christ? Are you the one that we are looking for? And these were Jesus' words in response. Blessed is he who shall not be offended in me, who is willing when somebody says something that is blasphemous against your God to simply tell them that that's not right. To be willing to have the same standards when others are watching as you would do by yourself. To be willing to open your Bible among your co-workers. To be willing to pray before a meal, if that's what you do. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to. But if that's what you do at home, to be willing to do it around those who might be watching. To, to not be inconsistent. To not change your actions simply because you're afraid of what others might think. I'm not talking about you Bible thumping. I'm not talking about you smacking people over the head with, with, with a Bible. What I'm talking about is you being, living your Christian life in, in, the, in the world around you. 
not being ashamed of who you are and what you stand for. It nearly brings a tear to my eye to think that I could possibly be ashamed of my Redeemer when one day I will stand before the Father deserving nothing and owing Christ everything and my Savior will stand next to me not being ashamed of me. He won't be ashamed of me on the day I stand before God. What a shame it is when I'm ashamed of Him. So be bold. And finally this evening as we close, be pure. Be pure. You have the hope. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 says this, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We don't know everything that it means to be a son of God. We don't know what's happening on the other side of the resurrection. God hasn't told us everything that is coming one day, but we do know something, and it's this, that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We do know that we will be conformed to the image of our Savior. We do know that we will receive a resurrected body of immortality. We do know that all of the suffering and the pain will be over. We do know that He will wipe every tear from our eyes. And John tells us that every man that hath this hope, that hath this earnest expectation, every man that understands this is what we have to look forward to one day, he purifies himself. Even as he, even as Jesus Christ is pure. You have hope. So be pure. Your Savior is coming. So be pure. You through Christ are already a part of the victory celebration. You are going to rejoice with Christ one day in victory over the world, over the sin of this world, over death and over the devil. So be pure. The world around you wants to destroy your purity. But the world around you is already judged. It's already going to burn one day. And you are not of this world. You're redeemed. So be pure. You are a child of the conquering King. So be pure. And that's the the note I will leave you on this evening. That every man that hath this hope, this hope of that which is to come, we don't know what all it means yet, but every man that hath this hope purifies himself even as He, our Savior, is pure. Let's pray together.